0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: I think another tricky thing here that kind of works underneath the surface that's worth talking about is that when you say immigrant and you ask, well, are you here legally or illegally? The bulk of people who are here are actually here legally. Uh, and so, uh, the automatic suspicion that if you're an immigrant, you must not only have you come in, but you've come in illegally, is actually a bad assumption to have. Is that not correct?
2: Completely yeah. accurate. And Denny and Alex can even answer that with, with more stats. Completely correct.
1: And, and I actually think that's an important thing to observe because uh, you know, even in going around this small table with the with the four of you, we have. Everyone here belongs here. Uh, you know, no one's here illegally, which is probably fortunate for the seminary that we don't have any illegal speakers. Uh, but uh, but more importantly, uh, more importantly, you all you all have roots. Some of you were born here, and have been here all your life. Uh, and yet the suspicion is from someone just looking at you or hearing your accent would be, well, uh, I, I should view you not only as an immigrant and an outsider, but I can be very suspicious that you don't even belong here. And, and that adds a, a tone to the discussion that also can be very destructive. Is that not right, Samuel? I'm keeping Samuel in the loop here because we're going to lose him here in a second. Go ahead.
2: It is. Unfortunately, it is. Hey, um, you know, my, my cousin died in the, in the battlefield of Iraq, my first cousin. My uncle died in Korea. My family members have fought for, for our nation since World War I. And I, I've experienced in, in a number of settings uh, comments and questions like, you know, Mexican, go home. Why don't you tell your people, please, to learn how to speak English, et cetera, et cetera. So my children, who are 21st century, 21st century young people, they've experienced racism and discrimination because of the color of their skin, because of their last name. So I never thought uh, that as a Generation Xer that I would see in my generation, my children, ex- experiencing racism after the fights of Dr. King and others, after so far, we've come so far as a nation. But the reality is that it's beyond immigration. There, there is a, a xenophobic threat. Not everyone who opposes immigration reform is, is anti-immigrant. There are some great people that just based on the rule of law, say, we want them to come here legally. And, and I, I would agree. I want people to come here legally, not illegally. But there is a small thread that stands exacerbated because of the polarizing rhetoric that impacts all of us. And,
1: and we're all faced with trying to fix something that everyone recognizes is broken. Right, and so, um, uh, and you can't you can't undo where you are. I mean, you have to deal with where you are. So that's so. Those are all realities that we face. Um, uh, Sarai, I want to ask you um, as you look at the practical side of this, of what people go through as they come and they have this. Not only do they have the shadow of possibly being illegal, and and so you know if they're illegal, being nervous because of their status, but you also have the shadow, a second shadow that we've now mentioned about being under suspicion of being illegal, even when you're completely legal. Um, how, how does that impact uh, the way people acclimate to the culture that they're that they've entered into?
3: Well, it polarizes people in terms of you know the activities and the integration into the community that that they belong to, because you like you you know you use the term shadow, but you always sometimes always on on guard, Mm -hmm. you know, because you don't know sometimes when you're going to be uh, discriminated. Or I had one time a repairman come into my house, and you know he said. ma'am I notice that you you have an accent and please don't be offended but are you from and he mentioned a country and I won't mention it just because you know but then that Told me very clearly that, you know, then he is biased against mm-hmm. people from that country. Mm-hmm. And and I said, No, I, I'm not from that country, but I would be proud to be from that country mm-hmm. the same. So um so really it really polarizes people and, and then I think it drives the immigrants to stay within the cocoons and within those circles that, you know, like anything or like most things, you have positive things and negative things. The mm-hmm. positive things that we've observed there is that you preserve the cultural aspect of it, the language for either your first or second generation, Um, but then you miss so much out of being part of the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. There are wonderful things here in this country to enjoy and to be part of that that we've experienced also when we have that exchange that people, once they go through that experience, they welcome it. Now I have people um, that I also work with uh, on the American side that say, would you please try to see if you can get some of the folks on the Spanish side to come and help with this. Hospitality is one of those things where the Latinos are so notorious for just having a great knack for hospitality. So, uh, so really, uh, the mention, the term, um, a negotiation of loss, uh, Mm I heard before. It really goes on in many of these arenas, Mm -hmm. in terms of negotiating what we're missing from both sides of Mm -hmm. the fence, both from the Latino or for the immigrant side as well as from the American side.
1: Yeah, because everyone loses in the sense of uh, um, uh, those who aren't Latino don't get the benefit. Of, of really a, a Latino compassion and gentleness and family and compassion that, that they often bring to any group that they're a part of, and, uh, and, and that gets missed out. Alejandro, I, wanna, I want you to talk about from the church standpoint, from a pastoral standpoint, you know, you're, you're connected to a denomination that's concerned about how this impacts the churches. What do you see within church communities or the pressures that are put on churches as a result of, of where things are?
4: Well, I think, um, as I mentioned before, churches fall along the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Too often times nowadays people are approaching church from a very political, evangelical perspective, and we need to inject into that conversation the biblical perspective. So I think churches nowadays are trying to decide where do they fall on this. Uh, Those that are, I believe, more of a biblical background are having to ask themselves very, very difficult questions as they hear the culture, they hear the communication in the media and those sorts of things, and, and try to reconcile that, as Danny had mentioned, in terms of a biblical framework. and And it's very confusing because they really don't know what they can and what they cannot do, and mm-hmm. that's one of the things that – The evangelical free church has really worked hard to do, and that. So, what
1: can churches do, and what can't they do?
4: (laughs) They can love. They can Mm -hmm. share the gospel. Um, Immigrant hope is an organization that we called that Danny had mentioned. Uh, Our our mission statement is to provide the hope of the gospel, help an illegal pathway, and a home in the church. Uh, What my sister here shared is so true. There's this polarizing and. What we want to do with Immigrant Hope is remove the polarizations, break down the walls, give people an opportunity to see Jesus at church. So a lot of these Immigrant Hope sites that we're setting up are providing legal counsel in a local church. Mm -hmm. Not only are they taught the particulars of the law, which is not easy. You've got to get... You've got uh, to go through some certification by the government to be able to provide that. But we also want our people to be able to share the gospel and uh, to share compassion. Initially when we brought this idea out, um, there was a lot of skepticism. There was uh, a few churches that actually couldn't believe that the Evangelical Free Church would do this, but the conversation has changed a whole lot now. From At first when they would ridicule, uh, then they would argue, and now there's a lot of imitations that are going on, and we encourage that. So changing the culture of the church's conversation from a political framework to a biblical framework is... Is very, very necessary and it's happening. Daryl. I don't see the resistance we were facing five years ago. Hmm. That we're, we're facing today is a lot more friendly conversation.
1: So, what church communities are able to do is kind of provide a, a means of, uh, of counseling for people who need it in, in a community in which they can function and, and, and help to get assimilated. Is that what I'm hearing?
4: Right. Like uh, the first immigrant hope site we set up is in Brooklyn, New York, Great mm-hmm. Laboratory. Mm-hmm. Even though I could have picked anywhere to go, I went to Brooklyn because I didn't want to fight with the border craziness. And so, you know, Brooklyn embodies immigrants. So the site that we chose is First Free in Brooklyn that has six, five congregations, Arabic, uh, uh, not Muslim, but Norwegian, Arabic, you know. and, And we actually have a paralegal counseling center there, Hmm. where people went through this training that we've developed, they got recognized by the government, the church did, and now they have people entering the church that never would have entered before, Muslims, all sorts of people. And it's in their neighborhood, Mm -hmm. you know, they have confidence, they have trust. That they're not some crazies; they've always been there.
1: So, is there a way? Am, am I reading between the lines here? I don't know if I'm getting this right. Is there a way for someone who is illegal to enter into a path to becoming legal, or or is that a very very difficult uh, hurdle
4: right now? Uh, Daryl, there's two issues that we have to deal with. One is advocacy; the other is capacity. Mm-hmm. Advocacy is what we're all trying to do in terms of speaking into the government for this humane pathway. Mm -hmm. But if we don't start building the ark now when it rains, we won't be ready. Mm -hmm. As they've done this work in the past in terms of changing immigration law, they only leave a small window. In 1986, when they had the last immigration quote unquote amnesty, Mm -hmm. there were 7 million immigrants. Only 1.3 partook of that very generous. Partially because there were not enough people to counsel and advise or wow. people they trusted. Hmm. So now we have double the people mm-hmm. with much less capacity. So what we're trying to do is beyond, move beyond advocacy to de- building capacity for when the law changes we 've got churches that are ready already set up to counsel immigrants
1: so so we could in other words, what i 'm hearing you say now is so we could change the law we could even change the law in a very humane way, and the ability and the capacity to actually absorb that difference would be so difficult and traumatic that it might not actually work even though it would be very well intended
4: it wouldn't work it wouldn't work without building the capacity by taking advantage of the places where we have boots on the ground, hmm. the church.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: So right now there's about 700 actual places where immigrants can go to get counsel, other than lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we want to do is double that if we can. They're saying generously the best chance for the law changing might be next summer. Mm-hmm. It takes them about six months to eight months to write the l- that's Loss. under ideal conditions, I think. <laughs> That's, those are very ideal. But yeah, the point yeah. being, if, if we're not about equipping our churches and uh equipping our people to be able to take advantage of that, then it's just gonna get clogged up all over again.
1: And Danny, what are you sensing as you hear this conversation that we're having about uh about what people need to be aware of? Can you hear me uh, yeah, I can hear you fine.
5: Yeah, uh I- uh, several things, and I don't know if you can answer. The only thing I deeply really understand actually for what you say, if there were a change in law, you'd have to have a registration process set in place, and that's kind of a talk about. We don't have the people on the ground to all these people in a time frame.
3: Can
1: you say No, Danny. I think your sound just went out. So. Uh, uh, so- uh, so may, I, yeah, go ahead.
3: May I? I like to tie something that he started with about the Great Commission and uh, this opportunity to show to um, provide with the resources and uh, counsel people on the legal aspect as well as show some compassion, because um, the ability to be able to provide with them a path that not everybody needs a lawyer to be able to get some of the um, documents and. and even become legal. And that's something that sometimes uh, people believe that you have to have thousands and thousands of dollars and you have to have a lawyer. And that's not necessarily so. But it does take some work to be able to work through um, the administration and the paperwork. Um, We've done several of them where we have been able to help families to get legal just because they didn't know and they were not aware that they had something in the makeup of their family and their work structure that they were able to use to get back into the legal side of it. But the other thing is that between the legal aspect, the language aspect, it provides for a wonderful, wonderful terrain to disciple people. And that's why I wanted to link it back to what you started with the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. Because um, as families are displaced um, in all these different countries and all these different places, uh, the heart is ready Mm -hmm. to really listen from the Lord. And we have seen beautiful examples in which families understand what the law is, understand really what the biblical background is, and they seek the will of the Lord. And many families actually go back to the country of origins, and they thrive a lot better than sometimes they do here. Many stay and thrive with a much different framework than when they came with originally. So really, the the beauty of all this is that by pairing those two things up, then really we are paying a lot more uh, contribution to the Great Commission, and that excites me now, tremendously. Can I
4: make a comment about yeah, my sure. sister? Sorry. Yeah. Um, Acts 17, 26, mm-hmm. it says, you know, we're all one nation, one blood. And it goes on there and says, God is the one that sets the times and the boundaries, I love 27, so that they might grow up for him and find him. Evangelical Free Church has 1,500 churches. They did a survey once. Let's just pick one country. Um, Of those 1,500 churches, 500 had done something with Mexico.
0: Hmm.
4: Blankets, Mm -hmm. seminaries, books, missionaries. For all that work, and we're just talking one denomination, what percentage of Mexico do you think is, uh, is evangelical? Which also includes Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, 4%. When they come here, statistics show that in the first generation 13% and by the third generation up to 30 to 40% become believers
1: this is this faith that gets plugged into yes. context
4: yes so so the the whole issue of moving mm-hmm. ripping out from your social structure opens you up to something because of fear because of need verse 27 kicks in
0: This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how Evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.
1: Well, I, you know, and I have shared very little of our own experience, but we, of course, have spent four sabbaticals in Germany in which we're in a foreign country, using a foreign language, when we go to meet with one of our kids, we in German schools and we went to the equivalent of a PTA meeting, of course it was all in German, my wife and I walk out and say to each other, how much of that did you actually get in terms of what was happening? I mean, I know what it is to feel very, very isolated. And the ability to have someone come alongside you in the midst of the culture and help you negotiate the way the culture actually works helps you to get located, it helps you to function well, it helps you actually to contribute better to the place where you live. Uh, All of that is a terrific service, it seems to me, and church's ability to do that is huge because it does have the potential to have a variety of resources with a variety of expertise because of the makeup of its communities. Danny, we've got you back. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, you're kind of hearing in and out on the conversation, but what would you add to what we're saying here about, about these issues?
5: little just said. Um, What I was trying to say is I I think uh, people in this country need to realize just how big the problem is. Alejandro was talking about the registration piece. Um, And then, you know, I have people in church I go to from Juarez and they've lost family members in the drug war. Um, You don't talk about going back uh, and thriving. Uh, in fact, you don't want to go back because uh, you've already lost two family members uh, in random gunfire. Uh, the flip side of it, and this is where, again, uh, challenges the culture up here, is there's a drug war in Mexico because the U.S. consumes drugs. And so you have to ask yourself, where would Juarez be if the U.S. didn't have a drug problem? Where would migration be into this country if the U.S. didn't have a drug problem? Where would the migration be if the U.S. didn't need immigrants for their economy? I mean, these are the hard questions, the uncomfortable questions. Uh, And in the church I go to, those questions have a human face Uh, and names. Uh, In kids, Uh, here's another piece, Daryl, talking about dividing families, I have people in the church that I go to where some of the kids are legal because they were born here. Other kids are not because they came when they were small and the parents aren't. And so not only is it about, you know, splitting parents from their kids, but you have the internal dynamics of a family that is mixed legality within the home itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, It's a very complicated, complicated thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, so just layer after layer after layer of things we we can talk about. Uh, I can talk about resources. I don't know how much time we have, but uh, I think I'd like to mention some resources for people uh, Go ahead. Off, off the air. Uh, I'd like to, to to highlight Alejandro's work, Immigration Hope, and Alejandro you might, after I'm done, uh, maybe give people contact information. I think what you do with local churches needs to be put out there more and more. Uh, I wrote a book on immigration called Christians at the Border. Uh, immigration, the Church of the Bible. There's another book uh, written by Matt Sorens, Matthew Sorens and Jenny Huang uh, called Welcoming the Stranger. And then something that Samuel uh, alluded to, though he wasn't specific, there's something called the Evangelical Immigration Table. Uh, this is where you'll get, you'll see people from across the spectrum from uh, Jim Daly at Focus on the Family to Jim Wallace at Sojourners, All Who Claim a Broad Evangelical Faith, Signing On, Basic Principles. And you can find that at EvangelicalImmigrationTable.com. Uh, there's also a program they have set up, uh, a 40-day reading program of the Scriptures. Uh, they'll send you uh, like a bookmark. And it just if you spend 40 days just reading the Bible, you know, a few verses a day, uh, what would your view be at the end of that time? I mean, so there's all kinds of, of resources, but I just mentioned my book, uh, Christians at the Border, Matt Sorens and Jenny Quang, Welcoming the Stranger, Alejandro's Work, and then the Table dot com.
1: Well, one of the things that we've tried to show is the complexity of this issue that's not easy, it's not straightforward, and it's actually a very um, tangled conversation in many ways. So I think to wrap up, I'm going to let each of you take a shot at at answering this question. How do you move forward, given where we are and given uh, the complexity of what it is that we see? What's the way forward? And and I think I would want to put this in categories. What, how should individuals think about this? What can they contribute? And then, how should we? How can we help the larger social conversation that we're having in the country about this topic? So think about it from an individual standpoint. Think about it from a more uh, corporate uh, standpoint. And uh, Soraya, I'll let you let you start. We ladies first here. We're in the south.
3: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think I would like to um, just say that each of us, as the Lord um, sets each of us a very very individual path, um, to look up and see what He places around you so that you can inform and help all those strangers, quote-unquote, around you, and then uh, that you can either help in very practical ways, in very meaningful ways by pointing them to the Lord. Um, and, and not be afraid, not be afraid to uh, enter into a brand new culture.
1: So, have a heart of compassion and sensitivity that would reach out in a personal way and, and seek to be uh, a way of helping those around you and perhaps uh, meeting the need. Maybe everyone, I'm sure almost all of us know someone who we know who finds himself in situations that we've described here, who we might be in a position to. To help, I, you know, I can think about we have a lady who cleans our house once a week who barely knows enough English. I have to use my very poor, broken Spanish to communicate with her. Sally comes to me and I'm the translator. Think about that, Danny. That's a frightening thought. And so, uh, uh, you know, and I sit there and I sometimes say, well first I wish I could communicate better with her just to know where she is but then secondly you know what could I, what could we do to help you know we we tend to be sensitive to her about uh, uh, recommending her to friends so that she can gain a better way of life and that kind of thing and take care of herself and her family better but uh, there's more than that that we could do I think so that's a good practical suggestion
4: Alejandro what would you say Well I think for me it's very important to be patient and pray Uh, But for me, in terms of the role that God's given me, it's uh, develop concrete pathways, things people can do that have been vetted. There are churches that want to do things, but we have to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why (laughs) ImmigrantHope.org was created, and we've created a training called Immigrant Pathway Institute. Basically are, are bringing everything down to a level that uh, a church can almost plug and play. It's, 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 it's difficult, but it's doable. So,
1: so what you're saying is if someone's listening and they say, oh, okay, yeah, I've, I feel a sense of, of being moved and being more sensitive in this area, what would you say to that person?
4: I would, first of all, tell them to read Danny's book.
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Second of all, I would tell them to look up uh, The Immigrant Hope dot uh, org website that has uh, articles and pathways and different sorts of things about practical suggestions practical about practical suggestions about just how to be how to be a friend to strangers and uh and uh to just just you know it starts with just simple acts of love and kindness and and realizing where we started from the very beginning we're all aliens and strangers every one of us has fears and uh we don't make ourselves better by putting somebody else down it, we We uh, show the love of God by putting a hand out and not worrying about the color of the language, Danny, what would you say?
5: Well, I won't repeat what's been said, so let me just add to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, get informed um get informed biblically, but get informed about realities of immigration um too many times we we let the media give us three or four bullet points and i hope that what's been communicated by all of us today this is an historical global complicated issue you know one thing is you know you have to separate out the people who are here from, you know, the discussion about who will come in the future. Those are two different populations and how you deal with those two things and how you coordinate it. I mean, very complex. So get informed, uh, not only biblically, but just socially, economically. And the other thing I would say, uh, again, not to repeat what anyone else has said, get to know immigrants. Put a face, put a name. What I have found as I travel the country and speak on immigration is once people get to know immigrants, and not just immigration as an abstract idea, everything changes. I mean, you just gave the example of a woman in your house. Um, that's how it changes. Now, you know, now it's Maria. Oops. Oops. The Light just went out. That's no,
1: okay. You're okay.
5: <laughs> I'm one of those sensitive light things. You
1: know? I know. I know. <laughs> uh,
5: it's uh, but anyway. So uh, you know, once you know somebody and their kids and their family, um, and then once churches begin to share worship and and and, and, <laughs> and meals together, it, that is where things change. So <laughs> I would say get informed and get to know some immigrants, and you will see a different side. You'll see the human side. Uh, to all of this. And then I would just echo what everyone else has said.
1: Now, I'm going to close by making an observation. I'm going to let you each have a chance to comment on it. And that is, we have not spent in this hour much time talking about the detailed politi- politics of how you actually solve the problem, what the law should look like, or anything like that. That's somewhat on purpose. Because I think that, uh, that that discussion is very much framed by how you approach the issue and think about it at an individual level, at a corporate level, uh, a societal level, that kind of thing. And so uh, to those of you who are listening to a, a podcast on immigration and expecting that, Uh, and yet we haven't delivered that at all, that's been somewhat intentional uh, because I think it's important to put a – as we've said, put a face on this and put the circumstances in front of you so that then you can step back and say, all right, now, does that impact the way I should have the remaining conversation that's that's definitely on the table, and that is what should this eventually look like? Um, Your reactions to the fact that we've gone at it this way, if I can say it that way. Uh, Alejandro, I'll let you start.
4: Best of my recollection, there's only been one law that was chiseled in stone. Everything else was written on paper. And in this great government that we live in, we're the ones that make up the law. So we ought not to be talking as if it's somewhere out there beyond our control. So we must speak into it. We must speak into uh, what compassion and justice looks like in the rule of law as it is here in America.
1: So your point would be that 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 it's a conversation that's necessary, it's a conversation that we have to have, and it's a conversation which we have to balance compassion on the one hand and justice, and if you want to think about it, law and order on the other, and we've got to wrestle with how exactly that's going to yeah, work out. I,
4: whenever I talk to people, they talk about the law as, it is, as if it is some static. Mm-hmm. And I encourage people, well, if you want to really look at immigration law, then go back and read it, mm-hmm. because there's going to be some parts of immigration law that you're not going to be proud of. So let's not pretend that the law is perfect. It's our law, and I own it, and I believe it. But let's not pretend that it is uh, something chiseled in stone like the Ten Commandments that everybody is proud of.
1: That's right.
3: You know, I think that as complex as the issue is, I think this calls us for every one of us to think about what is your decision? What is your stand? This is an issue that you're not going to be able to avoid no matter where you live. Mm -hmm. So uh, are you willing to be an active participant, be informed, show some compassion? Or are you willing to remain in a cocoon on whatever side you are? So I think the conversation today has shown that be informed because it's going to impact your life one way or another.
5: Danny? Yeah, I would uh, just build on a couple of things that have been said. Uh, Alejandro's right, there's some dark sides to U.S. immigration law. I mean, the one that everybody knows who works in it is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first federal law on immigration 1882, which basically excluded all Chinese from this country until 1943. We don't know those who aren't involved, don't know these kinds of stories that, that sometimes are very dark stories. We don't know about uh, Angel Island on on the West Coast, which is the equivalent of Ellis Island on the on the East Coast. But there, they would they would put people and lock them up. I have a friend whose grandmother came Chinese came through there and was uh, there for six months. Um, so there's this dark underside uh, to the law that that many don't know about. But uh, what I would say is this, we need to get to the legislation discussion, that's exactly what's begun in Washington, all the negotiations and compromise that go with that. The thing that we have to do is not to begin with legislation and, and then you know, back feed into Romans 13. We need to go to the Scriptures, get the full breadth of what the Scriptures say about this topic, then move forward to what we would think. Uh, immigration law should include in the kinds of things that the immigration law should do. So we have to work in a different way than we have on this. Uh, Let's do this informed uh, from the Bible versus here's the immigration law, let's go to Romans 13 and support whatever the law says. I would say no, the law is actually complicated and bad and contradictory and too complicated to even work and that's where everyone needs to change and everyone admits that. So the question is how do we change it and in what directions do we change it? Is it going to be a punitive, exclusionary kind of law which is one kind of tone and set of values or is it going to be truly a welcoming and empowering for the good of the country itself? Uh, it's a whole different conversation if you if you decide to make it empowering and constructive and welcoming versus uh, punitive and exclusionary. So that's where the Bible can help us.
1: Well, and you may have just introduced another topic to which we can come back, but we're not mm-hmm. going to do that today because our time is up. I want to thank all of you for being with us. Alejandro, Danny, Soraya, it's been a pleasure. We've had Samuel, but he had another commitment, so I can't say uh, thank you to him directly. But we thank you all for being a part of the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. And we hope that this discussion on immigration and, and seeing life from the standpoint of an immigrant and what they may face may actually prove to have been helpful to you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast.